When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome back to New Books and Environmental Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. My name is Brian Hamilton of Deerfield Academy, and I'm beyond excited to be joined by Malcolm Harris. He's a freelance writer living in D.C. and the author of the 2017 book Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials, as well as the 2020 essay collection Shit is Fucked Up and Bullshit, History Since the End of History. He joins me today to talk about his newest book, an absolutely stunning and monumental work entitled Palo Alto, A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. It comes out today from Little Brown. Malcolm Harris, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me, Brian. I'm sure we have lots of Malcolm Harris fans listening, but for the uninitiated, for maybe the Palo Alto fans in the room, um, could you say a bit about your earlier work and, and kind of trace the path that brought you to writing this book? Yeah. <clears throat> so I hadn't remembered it until I published this and I was talking to a friend of mine who I've known for a long time. And he reminded me that my first book, the original pitch for it was like half this book. It had a bunch of Palo Alto material in it, it turns out. So my first book was called Kids These Days, Human Capital and the Making of Millennials. And that was a sort of materialist generational analysis is what I tried to do rather than a lot of the generational analysis we see is about advertising and vibes. And I tried to take it, uh, a real materialist approach. Uh, and originally I had a lot of stuff about Palo Alto and the history of human capital formation that I guess I, I ended up excising, I think, thankfully from that book. Uh, but it's always been brewing in the back of my head. And uh, as it came out, uh, it's, it's a lot. <laughs> it is a lot. And uh, before we get into all that content, um, I'm just curious whether as you conceived of the project this time, um, were there other books that served as models to tell, like, uh, to tell you how to how to tell a, a big story through the lens of a rather small place? Uh, like reading it, I was I was thinking of Walter Johnson's Broken Heart of America. I don't know if there are other things out there. Yeah, <clears throat> no, that was that was going to be my answer. Uh, and Walter was kind enough to to blurb this book uh, as well. But yeah, I'd, I had recently read his book. Um, but when I was originally pitching it. I didn't think of it as this sort of epical history. Um, it was way more 
half memoir, half history, you know, my experiences with the place, at least that's how I sold the book originally. Um, so then I was thinking about like, you know, Didion's where I was from and like even Zabald and uh, his stuff about Europe. And then when I actually got down to writing it, I realized not only do I not like re- writing memoir stuff, but I'm not very good at it. <laughs> and I would much rather uh, focus on the actual history, which turned out there was like six times as much material as I assumed there was going to be. So it did change. It evolved as a project. Totally. And this is, this is absolutely a very serious work of history. You're, you're there in the margins and in, in, in the beginning and the end, but, um, but it really goes through all of this. And, and, and I was thinking of the historian Richard White um, and the broader school of new Western history argues that the West was, you know, born modern is the phrase, right? And your analysis really lines up with that. You, you write at one point that Alta California was a, a high technology zone from the beginning of Anglo colonization. Why, why was that? And, and where can we see that most clearly? Yeah. Uh, one text that gets at that really good, does a really good job getting at that, I think is Richard Walker's book, um, The Conquest of Bread, which is about early agriculture in California and the, or the full history of California agriculture, but has a, a Marxist approach. And he, this is one of the things he really focuses on, I think, to, to success. Uh, but the question of California's exceptional relationship to, to technology and to capitalist technology in particular, I think is really interesting because it is this last link in the chain of capitalist global development, right? <clears throat> so the establishment of Anglo-American Alta California, as well as colonies in Australia and then the capital conquest of China and Japan links the world system, right? You link the capitalist world system. And so California starts at the end of this process. Um, and so it takes the, the ethos of technological development, like from the beginning, but it's also short on labor. So it's short on wage labor in particular. And so these two factors combine to make it a really perfect place for developing labor saving technology very quickly. And so you see this even the beginning of California agriculture, where the farms uh, of California used three times as much horsepower, as many horse draft animals as the average farms in the United States. And we think of you know, draft animals as antiquated, but at the time, that's uh, an engine for your farm, right? That is like, that is technology. They're, they need draft animals to pull all the implements that you're going to attach to them, et cetera. Um, and so California becomes a center of technological development in mining before um, agriculture even, but uh, agriculture especially becomes such a focus of the state and still is, right? You still have the Giannini Institute doing agricultural research out of the UC system um, that was founded sort of to make a, a body of collective knowledge for these really advanced uh, agricultural capitalists in California. Thanks. Yeah. And then just thinking about the scope of the book, as I try to think about how to get into it here, um, it's really overwhelming. I, I think not for readers. I think you synthesize really well. It, it really, it reads as engagingly as a 700 page magazine article, really, but, but certainly for an interviewer like me. And so here's what I was thinking about trying to introduce folks to the book is, is to give listeners a sense of, of its breadth and the arguments you develop. I'm hoping you could sketch out a few of the through lines that, that run through your narrative, helping folks to see how the themes and the, the processes are visible across the century and a half that you cover. Does that work for you? Can we do that? 
Yeah. Okay. <laughs> well, I mean, there are, there are so many so and many. they're intertwining, right? <laughs> they're so, that's um, the thing. And so it's, it's really, it all makes sense on the page, but I know it's hard to do an interview, but we'll, we'll try here just to give them a flavor. So well, I mean, you can go for it. Yeah. You could think about it like a, like a bundle of fibers, right? And we'd like think about our bundle of through lines and the bundle I think is called capitalism, right? And that's what the, the story of Palo Alto really is, is a story of capitalism, because this is the period of planetary capitalism, right? Like the establishment of Palo Alto marks more or less the establishment of planetary capitalism and capitalism as the full world system. And so what are the through lines of capital during this period, especially in California, that you can trace from there to now? Um, You see like the development of technologies, especially around labor. Um, You see... Uh, global imperialism. You see the imperialism out of California and the development of the, the weapons industry as a uh, adjunct to that uh, imperialism, important partner. You see the development of the American economy um, in the world during this period, right? In its predominance in global finance. Um you see the fl- immigration flows throughout the entire this entire history, right? The globalization, not just of production of products, but also the circulation of laborers themselves, um, which is key to California's prosperity. You can see the story of racialization, uh, modern racialization through this whole period, right? That is still very much a going on now and a topic of conversation now in around Silicon Valley still is very like Elon Musk getting sued for uh, the labor distribution being racialized at the Tesla factory, right? That goes all the way back to the railroad. Um, so yeah, transportation networks, information networks, like the networking of the continent and the globe. Um, again, eventually if you like list enough of these, they start to all like uh, come together into some cable that we understand as capital. Absolutely. No, if we can loop back to a couple here, and I just invite you to sprinkle stories from from across that center and a half. Um, it's an environmental show. So let's, you know, let's start with land. You know, you, you write that from the, f- the founding of Palo Alto down to the present, we see, quote, land speculation premised on racial exclusion and domination. What are some examples of this? Yeah, it's, it's fascinating when you go back and look at the like really, really early California booster um pamphlets read it's a boosting santa clara county for example which is where palo alto ends up being and it's really like if you buy land here you know it's really nice and people in the east haven't heard of it and your value is going to triple or quadruple in just a few years and it wasn't anything about like you're going to grow stuff or you're going to find oil here it was just like get in first if you you're hearing me now right like you you're hearing about california now but not everybody's heard of it yet and if you get in early, then you can flip it later. And that was that just like pure speculative promise was the basis for the attitude. Uh, I think North America, so many North American settlers <clears throat> took towards California, whether they're coming from the East or from further abroad. And so that speculative promise was the promise that l- lured people out. And once they were there, you know, not everyone can cash in, right? Uh, there's competition for uh, the promise of California and the literal land, right? Or the water rights and the mineral rights and the, the kind of the value itself of the land, the timber rights. Um, 
And so that conflict takes on even before the establishment of the United States uh, state in California takes on a racial character really early, right? In the gold mining era. So there's a foreign miners tax that's instituted and the foreign miners tax basically separates uh, you know, American, USA, American uh, miners once the establishment of California from foreign miners and foreignizes them. And white from white miners, this was, even if they were foreign, uh, sometimes helpful, right? If you were French, you could pay your, your rent on your, your foreign miners tax and then people would actually leave you alone and you'd had a, a legitimate claim. But another function of this foreign miners tax was to delegitimize the claims of non-white miners, um, whether they're up from Sonora, which was plenty, or they're coming from Asia, which was also a fair amount coming from what we now understand as China. Um, and so from the beginning, the the governance of California, and if you read that, there's this book by Josiah Royce um, about the mining camp governance, which is the, one of the core myths of California is that like the miners came together and they sort of solved the collective action problem. They were like, you know, this isn't going to work out unless we can respect each other's claims. Let's all come together and form a government. And like, that's how government works. And it's this very like, um, nice story about the formation of states. Like it's a real social contract story. Uh, except the basis for that social contract was the exclusion of all these other people from that contract. And it's very clear when you look at the stories that, that they come together around this exclusion. And this is the first step in a, like really to the current day long process of establishing whiteness, both inclusively and exclusively in California. So you have the like figuring out the bounds of whiteness around this question of access to land, because that's crucial. And I, I recall that's like still what we're talking about, right, is land speculating. And so from the beginning, uh, whiteness has this connection to ownership of the land, which is not used for it's not a human tradition, right? They don't want to be small farmers. No one goes to California to work hard to be a small farmer. That's not the goal. The goal is to speculate and get rich, right? Even if there's you get a mining claim where there's gold, you don't want to mine the gold you want to sell the mining claim right and so land acquires this uh speculative value from from the very beginning and it's the mechanism through which along with whiteness that this land is colonized in the first place and it to a very frighteningly literal degree where you are if you joined the militia and you joined in what were essentially Indian killing campaigns, you'd be awarded a plot of land in exchange for driving people off the land that you stole. Uh, so just very straight up trades, right, for settlement. But then you, again, you couldn't like become a small farmer. You would then say rent that land to the timber trust. And so it's a real it's a real speculative gain. And so you're like, I'm going to join this. Indian killing campaign because I'm planning on getting that land, which then I can rent to those other guys or they can rent from me. Um, constantly speculative, like very much so from the beginning and obviously continues to be right. Exactly. And, and that's the through line brings us up to home ownership, right. And, and, and an economy based on asset price, price appreciation. You have to worry about that. Then it gets us to red lining and all of that. But another through line, we, we could fall into any of these rabbit holes, but another through line is, is, uh, is a concept that you, as a sim, uh, seemingly simplistic name, this, that, that you see that there's a 
the varied business enterprises from mining up through the very things that are going on in the 20th century in, in Palo Alto is that there's this common quest for what you call a money machine. Um, how does that kind of simple term usefully describe what all these different folks were after? Yeah. So with financialization, which you have uh, emerging along with the global planetary system, there's the idea that the phenomenon of people getting rich without doing anything, right? You make money off money. Um, and by speculation or by fraud or trickery or some combination of those few. Um, and so from the beginning, this is how the West is built, right? This is how not just the, the mining goes on that way, uh, but the railroads in particular are built around these um so the, the guys who build the railroad don't make money off the railroad. They make money off of the real estate company that buys the land near where the railroad's going to go because they know it's going to go up in value. And they're awarded land by the state around the railroad. And so then they spin that off and make money that way. Or they make money by running the rail company that sells to the railroad. And again, it's not about building rails. It's about having a guaranteed uh, source of money. And I think that attitude partly comes from if you start by gold mining, right? Where <clears throat> it has a unique character of like, you're picking up money off the ground, right? There's no uh, circulation required for you to realize your profits from gold mining. They're the gold. Um, and so the idea of everything being convertible to gold and money directly and being able to turn things to money, I think is, uh, let's say shallowly beneath the surface in California the whole time. Um, and at the same time, you have the development of these stock mechanisms that making are making this kind of financialization possible. And it's important to keep track of the, like, you know, the, the scammy nature of that kind of stuff. But it's also important to remember the, like, actual production being enabled by these stock efforts. So when you see, like, mining colonization going around, going on around the world, driven by these stock companies, like, some of those are frauds, right? Some of those mines don't have anything and they're going to be... Uh, used to trick people who invested poorly, but some of them are, and you're going to carve up whole countries, right? And you're going to like set the basis for colonial wealth in the 20th century um, with these same mechanisms. So I think, especially in Silicon Valley these days, it's tempting to see it all as a con as like a fluffy and not real. But one of the arguments I want to make in the book or I try to make in the book is that the reality of it, the underlying sources of profit are connected to these speculative mechanisms. And they're, that's much worse. It's way worse when it works than when it's just a, a con, right? Another through line um, that I think people will really be pulled in by are, are the repeated attempts we see emanating out from Stanford and other places, very influential attempts to measure human intelligence and to then affect demographic transformations of one kind or another. Um, what are some of these that, 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 that happen? And, and why do you think Stanford was such a hotbed for this kind of quote unquote research? Yeah. <clears throat> well, a natural hierarchy is really something they're really obsessed with, even like extending past humans. And so it starts with the, the stock farm, right? And Leland Stanford starts Palo Alto as a stock farm of trotting horses. And he's trying to improve <clears throat> using these same like speculative scientific values um, 
improve the genetic quality, what we will come to understand is the genetic quality of these lines of trotting horses, which were the engines of the United States at the time, right? There were 13 million of them in the country, uh, and they were vitally important to agriculture, the military, transportation, etc. <clears throat> and so he's trying to come up with like a high performance engine factory, basically. And this is heavily informed by ideas about natural hierarchy and uh, inborn excellence and um, quality of biological entities and natural hierarchy. And so that attitude carries into uh, Stanford University through primarily the founding president, who's David Starr Jordan, who comes out of Indiana University, where he was a focused on eugenics. He's an ichthyologist by profession, right? He studies fish, um, but is obsessed with eugenics and eugenics becomes his main interest. He's like a representative in world eugenics organizations. And uh, he's a real up there in terms of eugenicists. And he takes over the school. Uh, Maybe he murders Jane Stanford. Maybe not. I think he probably did. Um, (laughs) There's a lot of circumstantial evidence. I'll, I'll leave it at that. Um, and he sources a lot of the like early staff out of Indiana. He brings these other eugenicists in. And so Stanford becomes this home for eugenics, building off this legacy of the stock farm, except now they're focused primarily on human genetics and human quality. And one of the people he brings in from Indiana is a guy named Louis Terman, who then adapts a French test, um, that had been designed not for evaluating all people, but to find people who were really falling behind in education so that they could be given more resources to catch up um, with other people in education. It was cautioned by the creator not to be used for this purpose. Lewis Terman ignores it and adapts the IQ test for ranking individual humans. And he has a sense that we have an inborn IQ uh, and that that can be ascertained through measurements and that we should do this and then we should use this to maintain our genetic uh, hygiene as a species, but specifically as a nation, as a national project uh, to maintain our our genetic hygiene, which for them was racial hygiene, although they were still figuring out what the bounds of whiteness was going to be. And so the through line, I mean, it's then it becomes less surprising that we get both Garrett Hardin and Paul Ehrlich and doing the kind of neo-Malthusian things they're doing there in the sixties in the same place. Yeah. And not, and not far at all. Right. If you look at someone like Shockley, like Shockley himself as a child is, uh, subjected to these tests by Terman, right? He's one of the round of children of California who are checked for their IQ. Uh, And so that he comes back and is doing this work is, is not strange at all, right? He's doing exactly what he was trained to do from a small child and what he was brought, uh, brought up to do. We should, we should say that the, I mean, the book is, it's this nexus of all these fibers, but it's also this kind of braided biography of collective biography of so many people in this, in this place. And that really makes it all, it all makes a lot more sense when you think about it genealogically in this place. And so that's, there's revelations up and down in the book about that. Um, Of of the book's multitude of characters, Herbert Hoover maybe competes to be maybe the most prominent. You present him as, as a hugely influential figure in shaping the American right across decades. 
And I mean, he's in here more than Reagan, and that's not just because his affiliation with Stanford and his and his timing of his life. But um, why is understanding Hoover and his devotees so important to getting at 20th century conservatism in the United States? Yeah, it ends up being way more important than I thought it was going to be, because when you think about Herbert Hoover, you think of like the guy who lost to Roosevelt, right? right the guy right. who uh, discredited free market conservatism forever. LOL Hoover. Um, yeah, totally. Yeah, right. And that's how people thought about him for a small amount of time. Uh, and sort of the the Roosevelts uh, have have won that sort of historical battle so far. But Hoover outlived Roosevelt, both uh, literally and, uh, I think, politically in terms of their influence. And so first you have to understand Hoover as a product of Stanford, as a mining engineer, uh, as someone who's integral to the uh, – land rush, colonial land rushes that are going on around the world at the beginning of the 20th century. And this sort of gives him this like Forrest Gump kind of character where he's like at all these world hotspots at crucial times. So he's like at the Boxer Rebellion uh, and then he like just misses the Bolshevik uprising. And, you know, he's the reason he's at all these places of historical conflict is because he's sort of causing the conflict, right? He's the like mechanism of this world conflict. Uh, and he's taking these techniques that he learned at Stanford and going around the world and bringing, exporting the sort of California labor relations and technology <clears throat> to the rest of the world. So he goes to South Africa and says, I know how to solve our labor problems. We just going to bring some workers from China and bring some Italians and we're going to separate them and we're going to, you know, racialize this, uh, production system. And then we're going to increase work and decrease wages, and this is a like a set of practices that not just Hoover, but mining engineers from California export as part of this colonial activity that like theoretically the United States is not a big part of this colonial land rush at the time. Uh, however, when you think of it that way, and when you start to think about California as an overseas colony, which it really was for the United States at the time, um, at least for a long time, uh, the the impression changes a little bit. So he's already, he's like involved in world historical processes from a pretty young age and brags about it, right? Like everyone, Hoover's a big man in the world um, from very young and Stanford is, as an institution, is very proud of this. Uh, David Starr Jordan is like bringing him back to campus to brag. They're calling him, he said there's a, the, like the highest paid youngest man in the world, right? Like very Silicon Valley style plaudits for this guy who's an engineer, right? It's, uh, he's a star engineer and quickly Hoover finds that there's more money to be made as a speculator, as someone who's selling mining claims than someone who's actually, uh, making mining more efficient on the ground. And he turns into what we would understand as sort of a hedge fund guy, who's living in London trading paper and gets himself into trouble uh, for being one of these like stock speculator guys. It's he, and his reputation is sort of wearing thin as an actual genius engineer. And that's when he switches into politics. And so he starts by running the, he starts by getting exfiltrating all the people from the U S who are stuck in Europe through London out when World War One kicks out because he's hanging out in London where he's working. And 
he does this basically by setting up a credit rating bureau with his like a bunch of Oxford student volunteers, right, who are Americans who are stuck at Oxford. And they turn this into a credit ratings bureau where they separate all the Americans into different categories based on their credit worthiness. And using this, they're able to accomplish very little with very or a lot with very little cash because they're able to use their like banking credit networks. Um, at the same time, what they've done is turned a like disaster into a reimposition of hierarchy, right? They turned a situation where everyone's got to get out. We all have the same needs and it doesn't matter whether you're rich or poor. They like very carefully reinstituted that hierarchy so that things could be dealt with properly. Cause that's the only way they think things can be dealt with properly. Uh, cause they're obsessed with natural hierarchies. Uh, so without belaboring the Hoover story, right? He like becomes this national figure, uh, comes back to the United States, says, I'll be president for either party. I don't care. Either one of you guys can make me president. And this doesn't go over well with either party. Uh, but he ends up as running this new department in the government um, for the Republicans, which is the Commerce Department. And he runs the Commerce Department for its first two terms and really transforms it into the like 20th century state of the United States. Right. So he's just like grabbing different parts of the government government and reorganizing them under commerce. Um, because that's how sort of how he thought governance should work period is just all about commerce and you get interested parties together and they work out something together among themselves as, as friends, as buddies. Um, which is really he acquired that at Stanford, which is how he sort of operated at Stanford. And so by the time he's president, he's already restructured the United States in a whole bunch of different ways that are absolutely still current, whether that's the Colorado River Compact, which is falling apart right now that he established. Um, That was absolutely him, including his buddy from Stanford, his best friend from Stanford, who he names to the Department of the Interior, who is also the president of Stanford. And he forbids Stanford for from finding a new president while the president is serving in the cabinet. Um, So Stanford's president for four years is the secretary of the interior, Um, which is sort of, again, sort of how he thought government should work. He liked this, like the dollar a year guys, right? It's like we should just bring in guys from uh, industry and they should be the ones making the decisions. So he also, he does this, he brings in uh, these conferences and this is how he like, really likes to govern is the conferences of interested parties. And so this is how they set up the first model zoning law, for example, is a conference of real estate professionals that Hoover assembles that drafts this model zoning law for every state, um, comes up with the legal rationale for why they can do this, which is the police power, which is very interesting that that's the basis of zoning is police power. Um, they start, they, airline the air industry in the united states basically uh then so so many so many things um that we think of as the 20th century and a lot of them that we honestly that we give fdr credit for were formed by hoover and under hooverian auspices and even if he the, he ran into a wall with the depression fdr really like makes those programs work and they're not like new things that he came up with. These are Hooverian structures 
And so by the time, and when FDR dies, Hoover is now the last elected president, right? Truman takes over the presidency, but Hoover was the guy who was elected president last. And people actually pretty quickly uh, get apologetic towards Hoover, feeling like they they uh, backed the wrong guy. That like now FDR FDR went too far. Now they the capitalists hate FDR even after they abandoned Hoover. Now they want to come back to Hoover, and even Truman approaches Hoover to help him sell his foreign policy platform, right? He has to get the Marshall Plan through Congress. So who's going to get the Republicans to back the Marshall Plan? He calls in Hoover, and Hoover's the one who makes that sale, and not only makes the sale, but is himself on the ground in Germany, helping administer the remaking of Germany after World War II. And you don't think about Hoover is doing anything after 1928, and instead he's like not just on the ground in Germany, but working with... Uh, a whole crew of his guys, right? These like Hoover, Hoover cultists, more or less, which includes MacArthur, who's running Japan, <laughs> which includes Draper, who's overseeing uh, Germany, which includes uh, the guys who are coming up with the ORSD, which is the like research and development um, government functions that are going to set up the auspices for military Keynesianism under the Office of Naval Research and a bunch of other institutions that are run by Hooverites. And so if we're looking at like, where does conservatism come from? How does conservatism come back after it looks like they're getting their ass kicked in the 60s and 70s? And it doesn't really look like Nixon figures it out. If you look at his policies, he's like a liberal. Um, And Reagan is like, the weapon of execution, but people understand that it was happening before then that, that he just sort of is the face. And certainly no one thinks of Reagan as a great mind of anything. Um, it wasn't Eisenhower. And so people now, I I think it's sort of in fashion now to blame Jimmy Carter, like the real evil, like it's the counterintuitive take is the, the one who really brought neoliberalism in was, uh, Jimmy Carter. But if you think about Hoover living into the 60s, which he did, it's a, a lot easier to understand it as the revenge of Hooverism and the recurrence of Hoover's politics. And so I do, as I'm now spending in this interview, uh, I do in the book as well, a like what I imagined was a wildly disproportionate amount of time on Herbert Hoover. Like I never planned to write this much about Hoover. And I hope that readers aren't sitting there with this book being like, I thought this was a critical take on like biographies of presidents or whatever. Why do I need to know this much about Herbert Hoover? But I think it's the, it's the opposite, right? It's like to understand Hoover is to understand how these characters are used by larger systemic forces and come to embody them because it's impossible to think about like Hoover as this guy who was a loser with his like, total and absolute victory over world history yeah, during yeah, this yeah. period. <laughs> well, it's, it, it's, it, I, it's a methodological, methodological question I'd have for you because it is, there's a lot of white guys in this book that are like, you know, and, and it makes it very readable. I mean, all, uh, it's a diverse cast in the book. I don't mean to say that, but, and it's not, it's not great man history, not just because you don't celebrate them, but because you often note that like, if it wasn't this guy, it was going to be someone else, like some of the structures in place. And so I don't know how you ever, how did you work that out yourself when you decide how much agency to give or how much to attribute to one person's actual decisions versus the larger structures? Well, thankfully I can always turn to Karl Marx, you know, <laughs> right. uh, 
And so that I think that the Marxist tradition really has a, a lot of answers and a lot of ways to think about this intersection of history and biology, right? So I talk about C. Wright Mills in there, um, in terms of the sociological imagination and seeing the, the collision of history and biography. Um, there are like plenty of references to, I think, Marx and Sartre, even about, uh, you know, making something out of what's made with us. And so I start, I think I start with it, some advantages uh, methodologically by using that methodology, by using a, a Marxist historiography. Um, but it's still hard in terms of the practice of writing history, right? And especially where the characters who embody these tendencies tend to then make the history about themselves, right? If you look at a lot of histories, books about Silicon Valley, there's, you know, five to 10 white guys on the cover. And like, that's the history of Silicon Valley. Right. And to a certain degree, that's true. Right. It's important to think of this as a, since it is the history of capitalism, it's also a history of capitalists. Uh, but at the same time, and so it's, you don't want to like take that away. Right. It's important to talk about Charlie Spork and the development of offshoring and like, uh, you know, Hewlett and Packard and how the genetics at Stanford that allowed them to be put in the position that they were. Uh, so I didn't want to exclude these stories just for the sake of excluding them. And at the same time, I've also had reviewers, I think, describe the book as a history from below, which I thought was interesting because it's really not that, I don't think, at least that's not how I wrote it or how I think about it, is that if I'm talking about and I do talk about labor struggles for a lot of it. I'm talking about uh, um, indigenous struggles. I'm talking about land struggles. I'm talking about international struggles. Um, but it isn't It isn't a history from below. It's a history of capitalism. And so you have to have both sides, right? You have to have capital and labor in order to show the struggle between them. And I think so many histories of Silicon Valley just really pick one. Most of them just pick capital and just tell the story as a story of capital. And you never discover who made anything, who actually put anything together, right? After Steve Wozniak wires the first Apple, you never have to worry about anyone who's wiring any of the apples ever again, because uh, that doesn't count. Uh, and you have that, or you have maybe like, an, there are good, very good uh, academic histories that look at sort of, or academic studies, sociologies, um, that look at the labor component as the labor component. But again, think of it mostly uh, ethnographically or sociologically in terms of the labor experience and not the relation with capital as it develops over time. And so I really tried to get both of those and be centered in both of those. And it's hard because capital appears as individuals and labor appears as collectives. And so the way we talk about history privileges individuals. And so in this division, it's going to privilege capital. And then if you pick out an exceptional worker that really just uh, furthers the same sort of problem, right? Because like since workers uh, themselves are, do, are not represented as individuals, to do so is to basically represent labor as capital. Uh, and so you run into the same problem. And so to talk about the conflict constantly and just focus on the conflict and production, and there's no like, there's no like firm answer, right? There's no like, oh, and so this is how I did it. And that's the, that's how you make it through the loop. It's like, you got to keep all of these things in balance at all times. And I think I've, <laughs> I've been accused of falling on the wrong 
both wrong sides so far, I think. So I expect I'll be accused of falling on all wrong sides. And I'm not sure if that's a, a good indication or bad. <laughs> well, one place where we meet a lot of people who are not in, in tremendous positions of power is, is in the, your discussion of liberation struggles in the 60s and the 70s, which we would expect in a book about California, but but it's, it looks a little bit different from the view from Palo Alto. And I'd, well, I'd invite you to say as much about that as you'd want to say. Um, and then also you, you make this claim that that basically it's that's capitalist reaction to those struggles structured the fourth quarter of the 20th century. What do you mean by that? Yeah, absolutely. Well, going back even further, because I didn't know very, I knew very little about the early radical history of California or not of California, but of Palo Alto specifically. I knew more about California, but less about Palo Alto's particular radical history, which was very interesting. Um, that because interestingly enough, David Starr Jordan, because he is a, such a racist, such a eugenicist, it leads him into an, a like strong anti-imperialism position, which is that like imperialism is unnatural because you're basically just acquiring all of these people who are not at the same hierarchical standard as you. And like, uh, England is destroyed by colonizing India because it lowers both people. Um, and so he was, a uh, open to anti-colonial figures hanging out in Palo Alto, basically, as David Starr Jordan is the the dawn of Palo Alto at this time, having outlived both of the founders and becoming now the first and only president of the university. He's sort of in charge of the area. And so he's uh, somewhat open to anti-colonial planning and scheming going on in town, at least at the beginning, until that turns out to be a problem for him. Um, but so there are these in like, you know, very early anarchist and communist currents coalescing in Palo Alto from around the world. And so you see like important um, figures in the history of global communism passing through Palo Alto, mostly to like escape authorities on the Pacific Rim, whether it's like M.N. Roy, uh, a lot of the founders of the uh, and she, he meets Evelyn Roy, who becomes his wife at Stanford. She's a Stanford student who falls in love with M.N. Roy. Uh, so there's like from the beginning, there's the, there is this radicalism going on uh, in Palo Alto, as well as the like labor radicalism uh, in California. And so you have from the beginning this coalescence of local organic uh, labor movements, which are disconnected from maybe the industrial, larger industrial unions and a little more ad hoc and radical along with also international renegades, right? You got like the co constant collection of international renegades. And I think this is the, that sets up the character of the California left in a lot of different ways, both as very internationalist, really polyglot, but also disconnected a little bit from other tendencies of leftism and maybe more coherent, uh, like European socialist tendencies that are more prevalent on the East. And you have a more like anarchist, you got the anarchist tendencies coming up from Mexico. And like, there's like a lot of, a lot of cool stuff is going on in Northern California at this time. Um, and so, by the time we get to like, you know, the sixties and you think about like rebel California uh, and the new left, like the old left has been there for a while and you've still got 
the old left is still like around in California. You can remember the dock struggles and the ILWU and the like fights on the waterfront and the San Francisco general strike. And like, there's like real labor militancy that happens in the forties, uh, in the area. So I don't want to think about like some college kids started the left in the sixties in California. Cause like there's a, a, a long history. Totally. But, and, and then, but the way that the, we see this reaction, capitalist reaction to any radicalism that they, they're kind of, they're, they're acknowledging, um, playing out for the rest of the 20th century. What are some of the ways it does that, that the reaction really structures? Yeah. So it? you see the starting with in like the thirties, you see the, the formation of this real vigilante anti-communist vigilante tendency in California when they're called the, the ax handle brigades is how they're often referred to. And these are and often literal college football players, right? These are the reactionary forces. The California highway patrol is a key, uh, institution in this as well as bank of america and so the reactionary forces especially around agriculture in california form a a real block to take out the communist-led agricultural unionists in the 30s and so this conflict and the their experience of victory by force really i think shapes the right in california um that they do win and they do win by using military force in the fields and then in the streets and at the docks. And ultimately they're able to wrest control of territory from labor radicals, uh, through violence. And I think they never forget that, you know, and when Reagan comes around, you know, he can remember back to this time, right. And he, uh, has an understanding and more important, the people who are backing him, who are filling Reagan's head with Reaganisms are part of this tradition. None more so than Herbert Hoover, who owned a ranch where, which was one of the flashpoints for uh, agricultural radicalism in the thirties in his post-presidential period, uh, which I still think is just totally nuts. Well, we've gotten 45 minutes in and I haven't used the word computers yet. So I'm doing a great job as an interviewer. I know, here. There's, right? there's, there are indeed hundreds of pages on, on the computer history of, of the Valley and all, all the things you might expect and told in ways you wouldn't expect. Um, but you also know, I just I want to zoom in on one moment that I, that I had last night reading was that, you know, there's a moment between the bursting of the dot-com bubble at the turn of the 21st century and the Snowden revelations, you know, 10, 15 years later, when it even looked like parts of the tech industry were on the people's side, that there was a, you know, Google, we're not we're not evil. We're not going to you know, don't don't be evil. Um, and you could and you might you might even be able to believe that if you if you kind of pull some pieces together, what was going on then? Um, and, and reading that, I couldn't help but think of Sam Bankman-Fried, um, whose spectacular fall transpired. I imagine after your book went to press last December. Um, how would, if you had to fit SBF and effective altruism into the claims you develop in these final chapters of your book? How how would it go? Oh, I mean, you could, and I could have. I had time to. I could have predicted his whole thing if I wanted to. Uh, it was not very hard to figure out. I, I never thought I'm on record on all that Bitcoin stuff yep. the whole time of this is nonsense. Um, and so I chose, uh, I guess I, it's worth discussing why I chose not to focus or even include cryptocurrency. The cryptocurrency does not come up in the book one time. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I think Elon Musk maybe comes up once or twice. The PayPal like he gets like yeah. a mention. Mm-hmm. He's like a, he's like one of those dot com guys, mm-hmm. but he's not a major figure. Not Peter Thiel. Um, no. Peter Thiel is pre and Peter Thiel, I think is more important. Right. And I make an argument for like what it is about Peter Thiel that makes him more historically important than these other guys who I think are glorified con men or whatever. Um, 
So Sam Bankman-Fried totally could have been in there, but there's this real problem with histories of Silicon Valley in particular, where they're very focused. They tend to be really oriented by whatever's going on at that moment. And so if you're in the if you're writing in the middle of a cryptocurrency bubble or in the wake of a cryptocurrency bubble, then you're going to be writing about cryptocurrency. It doesn't matter that cryptocurrency doesn't matter, that no one's going to be talking about it in five years and that it's a you know an epiphenomenon that doesn't really have anything to do with what's going on long term because it's orienting your study. And I think that leads to a real like short shelf life for a lot of histories of Silicon Valley because they're so grounded in what's going on in that moment. And what goes on in that moment is changes a lot. Uh, And if you were writing it right now, you'd write it differently than you write it six months ago. And definitely six months before that, you'd write it different. Um, And that wasn't really workable for me working on this project that was 170 years long or whatever. I had to have some sense of what was going to be important and what was going to be less important. And cryptocurrency, I think like there are enough background for that phenomenon in the story in terms of what actually happened, what's happened before. You know, there are lots of Sam Bankman Freeds throughout the history. Um, He did a good job, I think, uh, exemplifying this sort of Palo Alto system, partly by being so young, being from Palo Alto. He knew like how to tickle the right uh brain cells of the Sequoia people and the VCs or whatever, playing video games, et cetera. Um, so, yeah, I mean, the, yeah, the reason I didn't include him and uh, or any of that crypto stuff is that I just don't think it's an example rather than the real drive or engine for anything that's happening, right? Yeah. What do you think will be the, the, the longer lasting narratives to help understand the tech industry in, in the last 40 years in Silicon Valley. You mentioned scrapers. Well, so you, you gonna... organize around, around scraping in the book. That's a big, a big part of it. Yeah. And while we're still seeing that, right. right. We're still in the age of scrapers. Like what is, what is all this open AI stuff, but web scrapers basically. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, they're just, yeah. Scraping data and writing data scrapers. Yeah. If you talk to tech people and I'm not a tech person, uh, but I know enough of them to know that and growing up there that the kind of, tech that's being developed now and that has been for about 20 years now none of it's impressive technologically to people who are technologically capable right i I think my my quote is that it it all makes uh steve jobs look like steve wozniak right there's a reason that jobs is the icon not any of the people with actual technological capability of which there were have been plenty in the bay and still are but that's not what's driving the industry and hasn't been for a long time and so when you talk about like oh sam altman's a genius coder or whatever it's like he was a a impressive coder when he was 19 is he one of the best computer engineers in the world absolutely not no one's going to say that he is and then get into someone like elon musk and it's a joke like literally a joke right um so and and then you have like the Google guys making fun of the Uber guys for not knowing anything about tech when, you know, actual the engineers would probably talk a bunch of shit about Google too. Uh, people who are like, you know, Nobel Prize winning physicists or whatever. That's not what we're dealing with anymore. Um, and so it's hard to get a sense of which of these technologies are going to matter long term because it's the finance underlying them that really matters. Right. It's that that's what's the 
the core of Silicon Valley is this VC finance layer. And so trying to figure out what they're going to do next is interesting. What, what are they going to do about climate? What are they doing with AI? Uh, I don't know. I, I think the, the chip war stuff is pretty interesting. And I feel lucky that I got that into the book before the other book uh, came out and then someone else got the narrative down or whatever. But the conflict about the spread of technology, I mean, you have the United States taking a position right now, which is, it's the official United States position to retard the spread of technology, right? We're trying to prevent other countries from developing high technology as a national security strategy and a like global economic strategy. And tracking that over the last couple of years is very interesting because it's the collapse of what had been a policy, which is that the U.S. nuclear umbrella allows us to export all of this production without any security risk. And now we're running into the problem of, well, can you build everything in Taiwan and not worry about anything ever happening to that? Like, not really. You can't anymore. And so how the U.S. uses Silicon Valley to conduct a struggle with, I think, China in particular, but with the rest of the world, uh, which is seeking to interact on terms of equality. That's the story of the 20th century too. And I think that continues to be the story in the 21st century now, um, which is that American exceptionalism has to be achieved somehow. And Silicon Valley has been the engine or the tool through which that has been been achieved over this last century. Yeah. Well, wrapping up here, um, I was thinking in his, in his review of Kids These Days, your book Kids These Days, um, historian Gabriel Winant he explores in part of it the divisions within the contemporary American left. And he eventually arrives at the question, what is the proper relationship to the past for those of us who want to make a new future? And I wonder if I could just put that question to you, both as someone who just wrote a history of his hometown and as someone who's giving this book out to everyone else that has, doesn't come from that place. Um, what do you hope a, a 700 page history of Palo Alto can, can offer to political projects today? Yeah, well, I think there, there are a couple of things. One in particular about California is to historicize and how show how short this period is, right? Because there's a, I think there's a drive to understand the United States relation to indigenous nations as like one story, as a story that happened a very, very long time ago, and then the United States existed. Um, and that's absolutely untrue. If you think about the 1870s, as that settler colonialism is absolutely still going on. I mean, it's still going on in the 1960s, right? But if you're talking about the 1870s, like much of the territory is still controlled by indigenous people who still live there. Um, or you have some, some territory in California still controlled by indigenous people who live there. Uh, if you think about 1870 to now is 150 years, 150 years from Jamestown is like the colonial period, the revolutionary period, right? Like we're still in the revolutionary period in relation to the settler colonialism of the West. And so the idea that it's possible to undo something or to, to, to go back and um, if not rectify, then at least seek a future in that those wrongs of the recent past uh, is possible in California, I think, in a way that it might not be other places or it might be it's a lower hanging fruit in, in some sense, just because these are more recent crimes. And so I think to, to get people to remember that and then act on that information, we'll see how successful I'll be. I don't know. I, it's, I'm still running into some problems with, I think, the reception of the book and people not taking the land back stuff very seriously and 
uh, not understanding that I'm talking about a constituted tribal organization of the Muwekma Ohlone who could receive the land tomorrow uh, and not just like some generic like, oh, give it back to people who used to live here, but we don't know who they are. And that's a racial identification or whatever. It's like I'm talking about a political identification, right? Like a, a constituted political unit uh, that Stanford acknowledges as one. So that's hard. That's an up- uphill struggle, but one that I'm uh, definitely committed to. And another one I think that's crucial and a lesson that the new left learned that I think we forgot since and has been occluded by the sort of poor historiography around the new left, uh, which is that this is not a system you can negotiate with. The capitalism's not a, a collaborative system uh, that the workers of the world are going to be able to come to a peaceful resolution with and that you can't get the reforms that you need or even in a like real proximate sense by asking or convincing people for them. And you saw the new left, especially at Stanford, figure this out real step by step, particularly around the napalm campaign where they went through the full retinue of nonviolent resistance. You also saw Stanford students heavily involved in the civil rights movement, right? Going south with SNCC and going Freedom Summer. And so these are people who had way, way, way more experience with Gandhian nonviolence, with uh, political reformism, with voting registration. You know, like Stokely Carmichael was getting his brains beat in going to register people to vote for the Democratic Party, right? These are not, these are not, it's not that they did not know what these strategies were. It's that they came to their dead end. And I think when we look back on that, we think of these people as capricious, as impatient, um, even lazy, maybe anti-intellectual, and that that's where their politics came from. And I think when you really look at the you know primary source documents, when you look at the history, when you listen to what they were saying, and you look at what they were doing and the context for it, uh, it's impossible to hold that position. That these are these were very very smart, committed people um, who had a, a better sense of the system that we both live under than we do now. And I think we've got a, a lot to learn from that experience. Thank you, and and uh, again, happy pub day to the book today. And I know you'll be very busy in in the weeks and months to come talking about Palo Alto and talking about this wonderful wonderful book. Um, I wonder, are you? willing to preview any future projects that might be either either on a computer screen or, or in your mind right now um, for when the smoke oh, clears. You can say no also. I don't, I don't, well, I don't know what I'm going to be writing next, okay. if that's what you mean. I'm really excited. I mean, there are so many, this project opens up so many other projects, right? Yeah. I'd love to do like a reader of California communism. Uh, Cause like that book doesn't exist. That's a tradition that like needs to be understood better. Like Sam Darcy, who I think is a crucial character in the story, the mm-hmm, mm-hmm. head of the California communist party for a while, his memoirs are sitting in a box at NYU, uh, never been published there. And he's an amazing writer with like crazy experiences around the world at the time. Um, so that's something I'd love to work on. I'm think I'm going to do a, maybe a reading group around the communist manifesto sometime later this year. Mm. Um, with some orgs. So stay tuned for that. Yeah. Maybe uh, <laughs> it's going to be an exciting year, but really I'm excited to talk about this book because yeah. I've spent so long about it on it. And, uh, 
and it's so it's worth it. And is, we've only we've, this is the thrill. This is what I've been looking forward to. So I can't even think about what's next. <laughs> we've only and we've only I remind people again. We've only just just barely scraped the surface here, and you really and you can't you can't believe what's in this book until you get in there yourself. So I encourage you to do that. Again, the book again is Palo Alto: A History of California, Capitalism, and the World. It's out today from Little Brown. Its author is and my guest has been Malcolm Harris. You can follow him on Twitter at Big Mean Internet. And if you're in Northern California right now, uh, you can, this week you can go catch him um, read from Palo Alto tonight in Napa at Coppersfield, tomorrow night in San Francisco at Book Passage, or on Thursday, he'll be in Berkeley at Mrs. Dalloway's. Malcolm, thank you so much for your time and for this book. Thank you, Brian.